Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, this month the Lincoln Project is going to be dedicating itself and our energy to making sure that Americans across the country know the good job that Joe Biden is doing on behalf of the American people and on behalf of the United States. I hope you'll tune in to our work and share the content and materials we're putting out with your friends and neighbors. Guys, the next 14 months are as crucial a time as we've seen in our living memory. Go to lincolnproject.us or jointheunion.us to get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again joined by Ruth Ben-Ghiat, author and professor of history and Italian at New York University. Ruth is an expert on fascism, authoritarianism, war, propaganda, and unfortunately, Donald Trump, and is the recipient of the Guggenheim, Fulbright, and other fellowships. She's a columnist for MSNBC and has written for a wide variety of outlets, including CNN, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. She's authored multiple books, including her latest, Strongmen, From Mussolini to the Present, which I highly recommend. She's also the founder and publisher of Lucid, her Substack newsletter. Today, she's coming to us from New York City. Ruth, welcome back. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So this morning, as we're recording this, you put out a newsletter on your Lucid Substack about Enrico Terrio. Enrico Terrio was the leader at one point of the Proud Boys. As we're recording this yesterday, he was sentenced to 22 years in federal prison for his role in January 6th sedition storming the Capitol. And you said that probably half a dozen of these guys between Proud Boys, Stuart Rhodes, and the three percenters have gotten more than 10 years. And it's a lot. I mean, listen, I don't think there's time off for good behavior in federal prison. So like 10 years in the pen is a big deal. But tell us a little bit about what you were saying this morning when you said that Terrio going to prison is just one part of it that the Proud Boys and groups like them are now really integrated into Republican slash right-wing politics. Yeah, so it's very important that you have so many of these longer sentences. You have, you know, Joe Biggs, also the Proud Boys leaders in the Seattle area and the Philadelphia area. They all got, you know, lengthy sentences. And that's important because there is in counterterrorism, this kind of decapitation strategy. So this is, you know, part of the leadership that is unavailable for a long time. And the Proud Boys may be a little less affected than a more hierarchical, very leader-centric group like the Oath Keepers, which has apparently declined a bit after Stuart Rhodes was sentenced to a long time in prison. But these groups, they're flourishing. And what's interesting, if you look at the map of hate crimes, is that the number of hate groups is declining in America. But they're consolidating, and the Proud Boys in particular is surging. So some people are leaving these smaller fringe groups and going to the Proud Boys. The Oath Keepers is still very strong because it has ties with many GOP local and state officials. So 
these groups are mainstreaming themselves. It's a two-way street. They are mainstreaming themselves somewhat, but the Republican Party is coming to meet them because it's fusing with extremism. And so you have, you know, Proud Boys who are now serving in the Miami-Dade Republican Executive Committee. So they're taking desk jobs. They're becoming, quote, respectable. And I saw this in Italy when, you know, neo-fascists came into power and these people used to be total fringe wackos and then all of a sudden they're in parliament. So this mainstreaming of extremism never ends well. Well, and before we get on to the other stuff, let's talk about that because whether or not it's what you're talking about you've seen in Italy, what we saw with Trump's first term in office, what we saw in 1930s Germany, maybe even in 1930s Italy, is people that rise to power in these places would not have had a place in any sort of legitimate or normal governmental or political structure. No. And, you know, fascism in Italy started as a decentralized militia movement. And you had these squads, the squadristi were squads, they were local militias. And then eventually they came under Mussolini's kind of leadership. But they took over town councils, they took over, you know, local environments, wrecking trade unions. And so they started out around the country and they mainstreamed themselves eventually. And then what happens with fascism is the extremists become the government. But they depend on what used to be called conservative elites, like established elites in politics, to bring them into power or meet them halfway. And so this is a dynamic that allowed both Hitler and Mussolini to get to power. Both of them were appointed by these conservative elites. And now we see this kind of rapprochement or coming together of the GOP, which is getting new energies from extremism. And that's one of the agendas that Trump set himself to do from 2016 when he you know, signaled to them, he retweeted white supremacist propaganda. And they are also, I think, they're not giving up violence at all, but these lengthy prison sentences have taught some of them that there's another way to influence politics. It's interesting because this week, again, as we're recording this, there was a lot of footage out of Florida where there were self-avowed Nazis, you know, doing the Hitler salute, yelling Zig Heil, flying the swastika flag. And really, no one of note within the Republican Party said boo about it. No one was willing to say these guys are un-American, they're anti-democratic. You know, it was perfectly acceptable to them anyway to have these guys out there doing this stuff. In, at some point, in some way, it serves their purposes. And in fact, those people out in Florida were chanting, we are everywhere. Now, in reality, they're kind of nowhere. They're very small groups, but they want to have the appearance of being a lot more powerful than they are. And this is part of a historical pattern that it's one of the most sad things I think about all the time is when Mussolini staged his march on Rome, which was, let's say, like a soft coup, there were only 30,000 squadrists, black shirts, 30,000. The king was commander-in-chief of the Italian armed forces, and he could have called them out and easily, you know, gotten rid of these 30,000 people. So they were not big in a country of 44 million, but they ended up getting to power and then becoming the government. So we're going to see more and more of these people out there because they're trying to create a climate of intimidation, seeming 
grander than they are. We know they're dangerous. And the more silence there is from the GOP, the more they're going to come out again. Right. Let me ask you this. Neo-Nazis are a particular breed, I guess, right? Nazism had a fairly distinct ideological bent, most of it anti-Semitic, you know, based on race, all that. The Proud Boys, though, what I've read about them and I've interviewed an author who wrote a book about them, these seem to be the misfit types, the incel types. You know, they're afraid of girls. You know, if they weren't dangerous, right, Ruth, they'd have these sort of ridiculous indoctrination rituals. But when the time comes, we saw in 2020, and I assume we could see again over the course of the next 14 months, you know, they were willing to go out and knock heads together in the streets against, quote unquote, Antifa, which became sort of their titular enemy. Yeah. And, you know, the early Nazis also had many misfits and the early fascists had a combination of students, but also now here we're talking, it's after World War I, veterans who couldn't demobilize, traumatized, now we would call it PTSD, people who were misfits in that sense too. And these types of men always find comfort in a community of people like themselves and especially submitting to the leader. So the leader principle is very important. Talk to us about the leader principle. Is the leader principle so powerful because it absolves someone of responsibility for making decisions, for finding direction? Give us a little sense of why that is so powerful, especially not only amongst people that are choosing the Proud Boy, but also amongst, you know, an economic cohort that Trump won in 2020, which is men that make more than $100,000. There's a mechanism of identification with the leader where the leader appears to be the man who gets away with everything, but who also has everything and embodies the values that those men want to embody themselves. So there's that kind of identification. And that's why the bonds that are formed between the followers and the leader are extremely strong. And the leader knows he milks those things. He tells them, like Trump says, I love you, you know, you're the forgotten, you're forgotten no longer, I care about you, you're very fine people. And these are people, I can guarantee you that those neo-Nazis who went to Charlottesville in 2017 never expected that the president of the United States would call them very fine people. And in terms of the Proud Boys, when Trump was doing a presidential debate in 2020, and he called out them by name. And he said, Proud Boys, stand, what was it, stand by? And yeah, stand back and stand by. Yes. So they were called by the president of the United States and their membership surged. And that became their slogan. That's right. And indeed, Trump cultivated these people. And a little known fact is that both three percenters and Oath Keepers and Proud Boys were used as security at Trump rallies and at rallies of other GOP politicians since 2016. I find that interesting because actually the first squad in fascist Italy, the, the original thugs, they came out of Mussolini's private bodyguards and they protected him at rallies. I'm like, oh no, this is like a kind of history repeating itself. And then as we know, he cultivated them. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, 
all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. It's interesting because I, I'm an old advanced man, as everybody's heard me say too much. And I worked for President George W. Bush when he was governor running for president. And then when he was president, you know, we had Texas state troopers. We had ultimately the United States Secret Service. But Ruth, there was never, ever a time, whether or not it was a town hall meeting, whether or not it was a little speech at a business or whether or not it was a 25, 30,000 person rally that we said, you know what? Like we need to find some local toughs. Right. Like we need to find some bad dudes to hang around like that was never, ever, ever on our list. And if there was a problem in the crowd, right, where there was a protest or something, the first thing we said is no one touches anybody. You call the local authorities and they will handle the person because at that point now they were, quote unquote, trespassing. We had a whole legal framework for dealing peaceably and effectively and appropriately with people who, you know, were opposed to the president for whatever reason. Now it's you know, they used to take those guys out on stretchers, right? Yes. Well, that's because Trump has used his rallies since the very start, 2015, as radicalization sites. And this is something that people who study extremists knew early on, but it didn't quite compute for many people that this was a sign that Trump was not a normal politician of either party. He was an autocrat. He was a chaos agent. So the rallies, and this is true up to this day, they are radicalization sites. So if that's the function, who better to provide security than extremists? So it's not just Trump by what he says, where he preaches, you know, that violence is good. He says the problem is people don't want to hurt each other anymore, or the stretchers comment. But being there, a lot of them come as attendees, and then they mix with people. But being there as security is another way to They start conversations. They recruit people. So this is why I always say, you know, that the media has to be very careful the way they cover Trump campaign events. You know, the most obvious one was going to Waco, Texas to kick off his campaign. That was telling everyone that this is what he was going to be doing with his campaign. But the media often cover those events as though they were normal events, and they're not. So I wrote that essay on the Proud Boys. And I haven't written about these extremist groups before because they're a way in to many dynamics of radicalization that are happening in America and within the GOP. Let's go back to Waco for a second, because it wasn't just that he did this rally in April in Waco, Texas. It's that he did it in April in Waco, Texas, on the anniversary of the Branch Davidian compound David Koresh, all of this. I was in high school. I've I've told the story before. Ruth, they literally rolled a television into my Spanish class so we could watch a building burn down. This was in, I was in Dallas. It was pretty grim in retrospect. But this was the day of that event. And he's talking about this is the final battle. This is retribution. You know, I'm your revenge. I'm probably getting the words in the wrong order, but all of those words. And, you know, I'm noted to you right before we started that there's a video clip of, former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee on the Christian Broadcasting Network, I think of all things, saying if Donald Trump loses the 2024 election, and I want to make sure I get it right, this will be the last election decided by ballots rather than bullets if Trump loses, right? So now Huckabee was, you know, sort of a 
larger than life sort of hail fellow, well met, you know, good old Southern governor when he was from Arkansas. And then he sort of went more into the sort of Christian nationalism piece as he ran for president in 2008, even I guess in 2012. But now he's totally crossed over as well. So talk to us a little bit about the language of this stuff, because we see not just with the Proud Boys, right, who are a physical manifestation of this stuff, but also Tree of Life, Allen, Texas, what we just saw in Jacksonville. These words, what's his name, the kid who went to a Trump rally, you know, in 2016, ends up going to Kenosha, Wisconsin and shooting three people, killing two of them. Talk to us a little bit about what those words mean. So you've got the radicalization piece of the Proud Boys, the three percenters. But when you have either the former president of the United States talking about this stuff or his surrogates like a Huckabee, tell us what those kinds of words do to people who are already either on the edge or over the edge. Yeah, this is one of the things I'm most worried about. So I've been saying for a very long time, not just that Trump's authoritarian, the GOP is an autocratic party, but for someone who studies fascism, hearing sitting lawmakers or GOP luminaries, former governors, talk about incite violence and praise violence is extremely grave for our democracy, for our fabric of our civil society. And it's really almost every day. And, you know, you had Matt Gates recently, you know, went to the state fair and people are enjoying their corn dogs or whatever. And he says he's there with Trump and he says, oh, you know, well, only force can bring change to Washington, D.C. So I have to unpack that. What he's saying is democratic legislation or reform is no longer the way we're going to do things. Even elections perhaps are no longer the way we're going to do things. We have to have force. So that's the language of a coup. That's the language of authoritarian takeovers. So what these people are doing, and they're casting a wide net. So there you had families at the fair. You know, the person you mentioned before is talking to Christians, but kind of armed Christians, meaning Christians who are militant. But they're doing a kind of emotional retraining that Trump has always done at his rallies, getting people to think that violence is not only necessary, it's just, it's morally righteous. And this is something that the fascists did. It's something that the military dictatorships like Pinochet, they did the same thing. This is extremely dangerous. I feel like for a lot of the MAGA people, whether or not that's Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon, Leonard Leo, you know, all of this sort of shadowy, dark money, and it's a significant thing, right? They're well-resourced. I get the sense that they know exactly what they're doing and they're happy to do it. Do you believe that someone like Trump intellectually knows what he's doing when he does this, or is it more instinctual? Yeah, that's one of the most common questions I get, and it's a really good question. So we know he doesn't read. He's not intellectual at all. I believe his first wife, Ivana, who said that he had two books years ago in his bedroom. One was The Art of the Deal by Trump and Tony Schwartz, ghostwriter, and the other was a book of Hitler's speeches. So maybe he looked through a few books when he was young. But for many years, he's an opportunist. He goes on instinct. But his values are that of dominating, corrupting, and doing everything that serves himself. And there are many other of these leaders who you can't say that they were intellectuals, but they saw the opportunities at certain historical junctures. They jumped in. And because they don't have a moral code and they're sociopaths of some sort, 
they will do what others, you know, wouldn't do. And the thing that is so devastating, and we see that with all these mugshots of Giuliani, of Meadows, they lead people to do things they wouldn't have imagined they would do, but they also convince them that they will be protected by the leader. And so seeing the Trump mugshot was a shock. And so some of those mugshots, there's a lot of anger, but they're also kind of incredulous that this is actually happening to them because they felt that leader Trump, he's the man who gets away with everything, so they would be protected too. But just because he gets away with it doesn't mean you get away with it. And I guess that's the question is, it's sort of the scorpion and the frog problem. It's in the scorpion's nature, right? And why doesn't the frog ever figure it out, Ruth? It's so interesting because this is a pattern that is also in my book that these people, they become like swept up in the aura or the charm circle of the strongmen. And they have a great deal of success for a long time. And so they never think it's going to happen to them. And neither does the leader, of course. But it's extraordinary to go back to the question of, you know, they don't have a master plan. But I will say that there's a reason that Trump is always talking about how great Xi Jinping is, how great Putin is. They pay very close attention to what others of their type do. And in Trump's case, he has aspirations to be like them. And then they have many people around them who are intellectual, who do plan. He's got an army of people. This is the Trump 2025 plan. He's got an army of kind of former bureaucrats and operatives, you know, planning his seizure of the state machinery. So they personally don't have to be the intellectuals. They just have to know how to manipulate people. Since Trump's multiple indictments, you know, and you've seen these people go up before Congress, especially people like Chris Ray, the FBI director, and there's the deep state, Ruth, and there's this weaponization of government, right? The Democrats are weaponizing government against you. But if you look at it, the truth is, is that either Trump already weaponized government against either the American people, some people standing on Pennsylvania Avenue, a co-equal branch of government. You know, he would have done more if he had stayed in office. He will do more if he gets back to office. You have someone like a Tommy Tuberville, who is demonstrably harming our national security by not allowing our military to do what it needs to do as far as promotions are concerned. You have Ron DeSantis in Florida removing small d democratically elected officials. And now in a place like Wisconsin, you know, you have the legislature thinking about how can we remove the appointed secretary of state and how can we impeach a left of center liberal Supreme Court justice who just got elected in April to fill a vacancy. And so it seems to me, Ruth, that the weaponization of government is not happening by Democrats because one, I don't think they do it. And two, I don't think they have it in them just because they're better people. But I mean, let me ask you this. I had Simon Rosenberg on the show. He said something that was really important. If they've already done January 6th, what makes you think they won't do anything, A, up to that, and B, beyond that, if that's our standard now of their behavior? I'm glad he said that because there is some kind of denial among the American people as a broad collective that January 6th actually happened as a coup attempt. There's something going on where it's the can't happen here thing. And part of this is for Fox viewers and others in that ecosystem, the right has been extremely effective at making it seem like it wasn't a big deal. So there's that. But there is some kind of inability or unwillingness to come to terms with what January 6th was. 
if I see any of that footage, I feel physically sick because I've studied coups and I know exactly what the stakes are for not taking it seriously. So that said, see, if you kind of memory hole the coup, as I call it, and decide, oh, it didn't really happen, maybe we can just forget about it. It wasn't that big a deal. Then you're at the place where you're like, well, he wouldn't really do those things, would he? It's like, well, he just, he had a violent coup. So that's one problem that is a broad problem involving also Americans who are not politically engaged, don't watch the news. It's like it maybe didn't happen. But what, we were, what you were describing before are actually two separate things. There's a category, and it's all very sad and awful. There's a category of GOP luminaries, powerful people who are actively sabotaging the United States, meaning Tuberville, this is infuriating that he's not only harming, you know, the U.S. inside domestically, the goal is to, as it always was for Trump, to take down America as a force for, you know, democratic influence in the world to the advantage of the autocrat enemies. That's it. But you also had Rand Paul, who was doing the same thing in the diplomatic sphere. He held up dozens and dozens of appointments so that there were many countries that had no U.S. ambassador. The sabotage results in a kind of a vacuum of power, and that's very dangerous. That has never been done before, to my knowledge. Whereas the other stuff, the trying to remove people, this falls under the category of what we call autocratic capture, when you try and cleanse government and make it serve yourself. That's like literally weaponizing, as you were saying. So you have to get rid of anybody who's not going to do your bidding. You get rid of dissidents, it's as we call them in other countries. Uh, you get rid of the opposition. You, know, you use intimidation, as is happening to election workers. There's all kinds of ways that you try and purge the mechanisms of government so that you could still have elections, but if something goes wrong, all the judges and everyone are friendly to you. And that's what Viktor Orban has done, you know, the GOP's big hero. So there's that going on, and there's also the sabotage going on. I get so angry when I think about the sabotage stuff because it's directly designed to make the world less safe to the advantage of Putin and Xi and all the autocrats. It's terrible. I'm listening to a, a very old book, Ruth, The Fall of the Third Republic by William L. Shire. And it's about the lead up to the German invasion in May of 1940. And there's so much in the lead up to, you know, in the 10 years ahead of, you know, it's really post-World War I all the way up to this invasion. But one thing he says is, because I'm now in the part about the Germans have actually crossed the border, is people in France had no idea what was going on. Like literally German panzers rolling over the frontier and they're sitting at cafes drinking wine, had no idea. Like, Everything will be fine. It'll be fine. It'll work out. And I feel like, you know, if you're sitting there and, you know, Saint Germain drinking rosé on May 10th, 1940, didn't work out. It never works out for the people who sit and drink wine and hope it'll all work. Like there's a necessity for a proactive response to this stuff. So why is it so hard? to? Is it just the Upton Sinclair? Like it can't happen here or Sinclair Lewis, I guess. It can't happen here. It's never happened here. So it won't happen here. That's part of it. And each time it happens, even though there's patterns with these demagogues and the use of propaganda and appeasement, and I tried, that's why I wrote the book and put Trump in it, because I wanted to warn Americans. But 
it's different every time, right? Trump isn't Hitler. Like, there isn't a one-party state. It's different today. And so that can make people be unprepared, especially then if they're also kind of in denial. Because, you know, if you really start realizing that our democracy is in danger and you see Trump and the GOP in a certain way, it means you have to do something about it. You can't just go on your you know, way of your life and think it's just going to be fine. And there's something I, I have in my book, Strongman. It's a small detail, but I think about it a lot these days. It's similar to your example. When Mussolini declared dictatorship in January 1925. Now, this was the first major dictatorship, so people didn't know. But they started immediately you know, sending trucks of fascists to round up dissidents and started cracking down. And there was a guy who was a communist who ended up having to go into hiding and then into exile. But right then, he went to a safe house, and another guy was in the safe house, and he said that while he was fleeing, he passed a long line of people standing outside the opera house in Milan, La Scala. They were going to see the opera as though everything was fine. And all around them, these trucks were going with fascists to start the dictatorship. And they were just like, I'm just going to the opera like I always do. Right. And then the rationalization begins. First of all, if I can be a bystander or an upstander, if I stand up, maybe the truck's coming for me, Ruth. Do I really want to be the guy hiding in the house or do I want to be wait the guy who's waiting to be in the box at La Scala? Well, it's not an altogether irrational thing to say I'd rather go to the opera for the evening with my wife than be hiding in a little house trying to get out of the country, right? Absolutely. And authoritarians know that, and they are diabolically efficient at making the stakes so high. For example, even if you did go into exile, they go after your family. And they make sure, and Putin does this today, anybody who speaks out, look how many people have died under suspicious circumstances since the war began. But the thing that's sad about that is that when you're at the very beginning, before the dictatorship is declared, there's still time, if we all collectively work together, to stop this. And we're in that moment now, especially now we have Huckabee saying, you know, if Trump loses, it's going to be bullets. Well, great. So now is the time for people to reach out to those who don't usually vote, to those who are independent voters, and to talk about outcomes. What is this going to be like? Because we're in the window now. We're going to wrap up here just real quick. But anything else that you're seeing out there that you think that our listeners who are very active and very engaged and share so much of what they hear here, what else should we be looking at? So. Successful resistance is broad-based resistance, and it includes people of faith. There's a whole history of, whether it's churches or synagogues, whatever the faith is, of progressives coming together and having that kind of faith-based resistance. I also think that it's time to involve the business community and here making outcome arguments. You know what? Political violence is not going to be good for business. Civil strife is not good for business. Dictatorships aren't typically good for business. No, there's a whole myth about dictatorships being efficient, and that, that's another reason I wrote the book, to kind of debunk those myths. So business communities in elites or whatever, small business, whatever level, that's another big area of society that needs to get sensitized to the stakes of what 
we're looking at. Well, listen, Ruth, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Before we let you go, where can folks find you on social media if you still dare to go there? And where can they find your Substack? I'm on Twitter and Instagram and threads at Ruth Ben Giat altogether. I publish a Substack newsletter called Lucid, which is all about the things we're talking about now, threats to democracy in the U.S. and globally. And then I have a website, ruthbengiet.com, where you can find my latest interviews and all kinds of stuff. Absolutely. Everybody, sign up for Lucid. Get strong, men. I have it here on my bookshelf. I killed a highlighter on it, Ruth, as I kill so many great books that I get to read. Thanks to folks like you. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter for the moment at Reed Galen on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Ruth Bengiat, thanks for joining me. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.